We start tonight with this breaking news that just came out of the Supreme Court. Breaking news about this, this drug. Uh, it is called Mifepristone. It is a pill about the size of an aspirin. And it is the first of two pills used in the most common form of abortion here in the United States, medication abortion. It is safe, it is effective, and it is significantly less invasive than a surgical abortion. And if you have been following the news, you would know that earlier this month, a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas ruled that despite this drug being used safely for 23 years now, the FDA was wrong to approve the drug. And his ruling had the potential to take the drug off the market altogether. So tonight's decision from the Supreme Court was pretty clear. It means this will not happen, at least not yet. Uh, the Supreme Court issued what is known as a stay, meaning they are effectively blocking that Texas judge's decision while this case is appealed through our court system, maybe even all the way back to the Supreme Court down the road. Now, the lower court uh, battle is complicated and weedy and may lead to some uh, chaos down the line for Mifepristone access. And we're going to talk to experts about that in just a moment. But for now, for tonight, this drug is still widely available. So on a practical level, that is where we are. The question is, on a legal level, tonight's ruling is also quite interesting. There is a majority of justices who approved tonight's stay, but at least two did not. Justice Clarence Thomas said that he would have denied this stay. He didn't explain why. There's just a single line in this ruling that says he disagrees. And Justice Samuel Alito wrote a full dissent and we're going to ask our experts for help in trying to read the tea leaves here in just a second as well. But what does this actually mean about where uh, we as a country stand in the larger battle over abortion access? Planned Parenthood called the decision good news, but they also said that the access to this drug should never have been in jeopardy in the first place. President Biden said he continues to stand by the FDA's evidence-based approval of the drug and called on the American people to use their vote as their voice and elect a Congress who will pass a law restoring the protections of Roe versus Wade. Nancy Northup, the head of the Center for Reproductive Rights, said the Supreme Court's decision is a huge relief, but we are not out of the woods yet. Joining us now are Nancy Northup, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, and Talia Farhadian Weinstein, who is a former Supreme Court clerk and an MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you both uh, for being here. Nancy, I'll start with you. Um, tonight's decision, were you surprised by this order? And what do you mean when you say we are not out of the woods yet? Well, let me just start by saying I am happy about this order. I am relieved about this order. It's very good. We're not out of the woods yet because basically, you know, the Supreme Court did say there's going to be a stay in fact. So that's good. You know, we represent abortion providers across the country and they can continue where abortion is legal to be providing medication abortion uh, to their patients for the next, we don't know, six weeks, eight weeks, you know, until the Supreme Court resolves any further issues that come up from the Fifth Circuit. But we're not out of the woods yet because, you know, they didn't decide this on the merits. They just said we're going to keep a stay in place right now. We shouldn't be here to begin with. This is a frivolous lawsuit. They judge shopped in Texas to get this in front of a very anti-abortion rights judge. And, you know, it's been on the market for 23 years. It's safe and effective. Five million women 
have used medication abortion. It is used in countries around the world. The World Health Organization says it's essential medicine. So we shouldn't be here at all. This should have been thrown out, you know, in, in as fast as it was filed. But here we are. It's a good for patients today. Uh, but we have to still be vigilant about what comes next. So, um, Ty, this ruling kicks Mephepristone um, down the road, basically, um, and essentially back to the Fifth uh, Circuit. How do you see this playing out in terms of the legal mechanics over the next several months? Yeah, so uh, this can really take some time because what the Supreme Court has said is that we're not going to make an emergency decision here. We are going to freeze the world before Judge Kaczmarek's decision, and it has to be fully baked before it comes back to us. And so it needs to get briefed into the Fifth Circuit, uh, and then they might decide if they want to take it back. So I think we're looking at a really long timeline in which this freeze is in place. And what are the potential outcomes now? Well, you know, uh, the court didn't tell us too much about what it was thinking. Uh, as you said, there are at least two justices who dissented from this decision to issue the stay. I say at least two because there's no rule that says that you're, you have to admit that you're a dissenter right. in the Supreme yeah, Court. Yeah, this is not a 7-2 ruling whatsoever. Right. It could be 7-2. It could be 6-3. It could be 5-4 just on this question of a stay. And only Justice Alito gave us a little bit of insight into his thinking. And he mostly talked about kind of the palace intrigue issue of when the court should be using its shadow docket. But he did drop a couple of hints about what he thinks about the merits of the case. Uh, and I think it's really important and actually quite concerning what he said about that. So uh, he said, first of all, that he didn't think that the people who wanted the stay had shown that there would be irreparable harm from allowing the Fifth Circuit decision to go into effect because he said it would just take us back to 2016. Well, a lot of things happened after 2016. Uh, the dosage was improved, really important to women's health. Uh, the generic became approved after 2016. And of course, I think most importantly, that's when this pill became available by mail. And Accessibility, yeah. Exactly. And not just doctors, you know, being the providers for it, a huge expansion of accessibility. So, uh, you know, to say that it isn't really harmful to set the clock back to before those changes um, is an aggressive position so to Nancy, take. Yeah, I was going to say, so I want to pick up on that point. So, Nancy, the, obviously the Supreme Court declined to take the case right now. Um, and assuming it does make its way back to the highest court, perhaps over the next 18 months or so, the earliest it could hear it would be this fall, and then potentially rule, a ruling could come during the heart of a very heated and charged 2024 election season. How does that timing affect the fight for access to abortion writ large? Well, I'll just say in general, of course, the fight for access to abortion is going on right now, uh, you know, throughout the country. Uh, it's not just that uh, we saw the great outcome in the midterm elections. We've seen it ballot initiatives and there will be more to come uh, that people are getting the right back themselves by voting it in at the ballot. We saw that in Michigan, California, Vermont. We also saw voters push back in Kansas and Kentucky and elsewhere where it was tried to be taken out of their state constitutions. And we see states like New York and California and more standing up and protecting providers in their states and patients who are coming to their states. So the battle is going on right now. Your viewers need to know that everyone needs to be activated and paying attention. So, you know, if this ends up next fall, we'll see what happens. 
But in the meantime, people have become quite educated about how safe and effective medication abortion is and that it is the method of preference for over half the women in the United States right now who seek abortion care. So going back to your point, Talia, about the the dissenting voices, um, Alito and Justice Thomas, does it give us any insight into how this may be revisited down the road, which is to say that, yes, they have frozen time, so to speak, on this decision pre-Kasmerics ruling. Mm -hmm. But does it give us any insight as to how they might be thinking if it does revert back to the Supreme Court um, in a year's time or so? Yeah, well, given that you don't have to say if you were a dissenter, I mean, this could have just been a one sentence order that said this decision is stayed. I think we do have to ask when the justices give us a little bit more about what they're thinking when they raise their hand and they say, I dissented from this decision. What are they trying to communicate? And I think, you know, Justice Alito has has said some arguments that he thinks might actually be good arguments. You know, the one we just talked about in terms of is it really so harmful to kind of go down to back to 2016 if you're not going all the way back to disapproval of the pill. And the other thing he said is, you know, the Department of Justice and the FDA might choose not to enforce the disapproval of mifepristone. So even if it's it, the, the drug should not have been brought to market, they might not go after anybody for putting it out there. And I thought that was kind of strange. He was saying, well, that might not make this, you know, a controversy that needs this emergency relief. Uh, So he's kind of raising the issue of kind of the court's power to tell the FDA what to do with its enforcement authority. Anyway, so I think those are two things that we should be watching. Let me ask you about. uh, Yeah, let me ask you about this kind of broader ruling about the judge in Washington having to make this Mm -hmm. decision. um, You know, the Essentially, the regulations of Mephepristone in 17 states and the District of Columbia, um, you know, could the Supreme Court here have to reconcile um, a conflict with that? Yeah. So, you know, while technically this might not make its way back to the Supreme Court, uh, I can't imagine that it won't because, you know, the Supreme Court, just for context, gets like 10,000 petitions a year and chooses about 75 or so to decide. And at the top of the criteria is if there's a conflict on an important issue between different courts and confusion as to what the law is. So when you have those two decisions that came out in Texas and in Washington state within an hour of each other that said, different things. And then more confusion. You know, we had this week the generic maker of Mifepristone say uh, in a different court in Maryland, you can't be serious that the generic, you know, could possibly not be on the market while the brand name drug remains on the market because it was approved earlier. So I think just given all of that chaos, a word that we're using a lot in this context, I think appropriately, uh, this will be back before the nine justices. And Nancy, let me ask you about what some states are doing. You've got Massachusetts, Washington, um, even Oregon as of today. They've essentially announced that they've stockpiled the drug. Other states like New York, California are stockpiling um, other drugs used in medication abortion. What would you advise people to do? You've talked about the fight for access to abortion is ongoing in real time on the electoral front. But in terms of uh, what states can do, what do you think should be done at this point as this continues to play out? Well, I think that states and they are need to look at all of their options. And it is a good thing that states are stepping up ever since the Supreme Court unjustifiably reversed Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision last June, states that support the right to make these important healthcare decisions for yourself are stepping up. They're making sure, as you pointed out, that, that the drugs are being stockpiled in those states. They're making sure that their providers can provide care to people coming from other states 
and are passing shield laws to protect their doctors from being hauled into the court, for example, in Texas, um, if they're providing care to Texas patients. All of that is tremendously important. And everyone needs to know whether you're in a state that is banning abortion or a state that has stood up for the right to make these fundamental decisions for ourselves. You know to let your elected officials know that you want them to be providing the right to access care. That is so important. But we're really glad that states are stepping up, doing the right thing so that people can get the health care that they need. Um, what do you think is going to happen next? What is the most likely outcome here? I mean, I, it's kind of hard to predict, but given all these moving yeah. pieces and this dynamic that's unfolding. Well, so I wasn't surprised that the court stayed Judge Kazimarek's decision. And I actually think that the FDA and the DOJ are going to win. And I think that they're going to win in the end because the lower court's decisions here on standing, on the issue of who gets to bring a case to federal court, is so divergent from 50 years of Supreme Court precedent. I mean, if ER are doctors who might see a botched medical abortion and be traumatized by it can come into federal court, then, I mean, you can just imagine all of the other arguments right. for uh, who can bring cases. And it would, I think, just radically change what federal courts can do. So I think that's not a left-right issue. I do not see a majority of the Supreme Court endorsing that standing doctrine. So I actually am pretty optimistic about the course of this one. Let's hope you're right for the yeah. sake of reproductive rights in this country. Um, Nancy Northrop, president and CEO of the Center for Reproductive Rights, and Talia Farhadi and Weinstein, former federal and state prosecutor right here in New York. Thank you very much to the both of you for being here tonight on this breaking news. Uh, we have much more news to get to this hour, including students walking out of schools across the state of Florida today to pr protest Ron DeSantis's education policies. Uh, a Florida Democratic state lawmaker joins me to react. But first, Longtime Trump attorney and advisor Boris Epstein today reportedly went back for round two of questioning its special counsel Jack Smith's investigation. What information he might have for investigators? That's next. Stay with us. So not a lot of people can say they have been in Donald Trump's inner circle from beginning to arraignment. But this guy has. His name is Boris Epstein. He worked on Trump's presidential campaign in 2016 and then later in the Trump White House. He is now a legal advisor to Trump. And his job is to kind of oversee both the civil and criminal lawyers defending Trump in his various investigations. Epstein has said that his closeness to Trump is a matter of loyalty but that loyalty has also resulted in Epstein getting tangled up in his boss's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. He was at the Ellipse rally when Trump urged supporters to march to the Capitol. He stood alongside Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell and others as they made their outlandish claims about supposed fraud in the aftermath of the election. And he also became a TV surrogate for Trump, telling the American public that the integrity of the election rested with the executive. Watch this. The president of the United States is the one who makes this decision. And as the chief executive, it's incumbent upon the president to ensure that this election was done in a fair and square manner. Now, of course, the chief executive has nothing to do with elections. State and local officials in this country are the ones that actually run elections. Governors sign the elector certificates. Congress certifies the electoral votes. But it makes sense that he said that because not long after that remark, we actually learned 
that Mr. Epstein was involved in the fake elector plot to assign electoral votes to Trump in seven states he had actually lost. There's also been reporting about the attempt to seat uh, fraudulent electors. Uh, Is that something you ever worked on or would support, for example, in Michigan? Yes, I was part of the process to make sure there were alternate electors for when, as we hoped, the challenges to the seated electors would be heard and would be successful. Everything that was done was done illegally by the Trump legal team, by according to to the rules and under the leadership of, of Rudy Giuliani. All under the leadership of Rudy Giuliani. A lot of people watched that interview, including prosecutors in Georgia who quickly subpoenaed Epstein over his direct involvement with this fake elector plot. And two weeks later, the FBI seized his phone. And all of this context is actually important because yesterday, federal prosecutors in the special counsel's office, they interviewed Epstein for multiple hours. ABC News reported that, quote, the interview was largely focused on the efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn Trump's 2020 election loss. Now, what's even more revealing about this interview, ABC reports, is that special counsel Jack Smith actually sat himself in on a portion of the interview. That's not common. And it's sort of a big deal. You know what else is also a big deal? Today, Boris Epstein reportedly went back in for a second day of questioning. Considering that the FBI has Epstein's phone, two days might just be the time prosecutors need to discuss what they found. Another possibility is that day two of questioning is focused on the Mar-a-Lago investigation in which Epstein also played a key role. Joining us now is former federal prosecutor and legal analyst Chanlin Wu. Uh, Chan, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Greatly appreciate your time. Let's talk about that second revelation. I mean, the fact that he was there for two days. Why do you think prosecutors needed two days to interview Mr. Epstein? And how significant is the fact, uh, as ABC News was, was reporting, that the special counsel himself, Jack Smith, sat in on a portion of that interview? Well, I think uh, it really highlights uh, how important of a witness uh, someone like Epstein could be because he's right at Trump's side. And uh, as he boldly asserted, (laughs) he's fully aware of the efforts with regard to the fraudulent electors and uh, sort of implicating Rudy Giuliani in that as well. I think one thing to remember about it is it's such an unusual situation for a lawyer, a legal advisor, to have his phone seized And the amount of time, as you were saying, it could take just to go through the evidence in the phone in and of itself could take a long time. Uh, He doesn't seem like a man who's averse to talking. He may feel he can sort of talk his way around issues. He obviously could be asserting at times attorney-client privilege. um, But when you're in there that long, it certainly doesn't sound like he's making a blanket assertion. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about the phone for a moment. The, the fact that the FBI has Epstein's phone is pretty significant, I would say, given the fact that he, he you know, in some capacity was a lawyer in the Trump world. How right. does that change things for him that they have his phone and perhaps were able to, um, you know, access it, obviously recover it, maybe juxtapose what they're able to see on the phone with what they're questioning him about? Yeah, it really gives them a uh, outline to go through timelines with him, to go through uh, the narrative, to go through uh, what testimony he should be able to give based on what's 
in his phone. Uh, I can't emphasize what an odd situation it is that they have a lawyer's phone and are questioning him about the very client that he purports to represent. Uh, most attorneys in that situation would simply immediately recuse or withdraw from representing the client because they just are in a hopelessly conflicted situation. That obviously never seems to happen uh, with the Trump attorneys. So they just sort of like stagger on this way, doing some combination of blustering that there's attorney-client privilege and yet also trying to talk their way through things. But having something like a phone like that, um, that's a goldmine for prosecutors in terms of knowing where to pursue the questions. When you think of the long list of people who've worked in, um, you know, the Trump orbit, uh, both as lawyers or perhaps in political in a political capacity, have ended up being in legal jeopardy. Do you think somebody like a Boris Epstein could be in legal jeopardy? Uh, he could be. It seems like from his actions and from what we're seeing that perhaps he's not as much in the crosshairs. Um, folks like Giuliani, whose name keeps popping up, um, or even Powell Eastman, those seem like they're more in the crosshairs for Jeopardy. Um, I think even though Epstein is not a criminal defense lawyer himself, I suspect he's savvy enough that he would want to stay out of the testimony if he was really being told that he was a target or faced Jeopardy. And it seems that, you know, um, Epstein could have said no to talking to prosecutors. Why do you think he went in? Why do you think he did not try um, to fight this, perhaps prolong his participation, as we've seen other uh, Trump surrogates do? Yeah, it's really interesting. A lot of people who uh, are overly confident about themselves, uh, rather arrogant, you'll see this sometimes with high-powered executives and such, they really think that they're able to talk their way out of anything. And so that might be uh, why he feels you know, he's good enough to get in there and talk without having to fight it legally, without having to assert a privilege, and perhaps feels that he can do his client a lot of good. Uh, no doubt he may feel that it inures him to Trump, being unafraid to go in there and put on the spin machine for Trump. You know, but there's a reason why um, press relations people usually aren't involved in the substance of policymaking decisions or legal strategy decisions, because they're really involved in doing spin. They're not involved in that substantive effort. Somebody like him seems to want to do both. And uh, usually that's a really bad idea. Let me ask you, if I can, Shan, about another development that we saw this evening. It's also a Trump matter. Um, there was obviously there is this ongoing uh, legal uh, struggle here in Manhattan. We learned tonight that the Manhattan DA's office withdrew its appeal mm. of a federal judge's decision that former prosecutor Mark uh, Pomerantz must testify to the House Judiciary Committee, basically paving the way for him to cooperate with the House Judiciary Committee uh, in that uh, inquiry, as I understand it, with the presence of a lawyer uh, from the Manhattan DA's office. What do you make of that? Is that significant? And, and what do you anticipate um, happens next? I think for the Manhattan DA's office, it was a critical win for them to be able to have their own general counsel there uh, for this testimony, because they really want to protect the privilege and confidential discussions that have gone on there, which legally really aren't Pomerantz's to waive. And so they're really wanting to protect that. I think some of the calculus may have been that trying to wholesale seal him off, block him at all from appearing, was probably not a very sound legal argument to be able to make, especially given he'd written the book. But question by question, that's usually where privilege really gets litigated and asserted, is very specific to the topic and the question. So this actually makes a lot of sense for them to do it this way, and I think it gives them a lot of protection for their work product as well. 
that is scheduled to take place May 12th. We'll see whether or not that does take place on time. Former federal prosecutor and legal analyst Shanlin Wu, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your time this evening. Oh, good to see you. Likewise, when we come back, we're going to go to Florida, 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 where on the one hand, Governor Ron DeSantis's ambition to be the Republican nominee for president. Well, they're being undercut by that other guy in Florida. And on the other hand, Florida students walked out of class today to protest how their governor is building his presidential bona fides at their expense. We're going to get a view from the ground as DeSantis tries to take his so-called war on woke to a national battlefield. That is next. These are just some of the few scenes that played out all across Florida this afternoon. You see there on the left, um, students walking out of class on the campus of the University of Central Florida. Uh, on the right of your screen, students holding a rally on the campus of Eckerd College in St. Petersburg. Uh, in Miami, students at the city's public school for advanced studies also walked out of class. Uh, they had signs that read, gender doesn't harm kids, you're just a homophobe. And banning books and history is not freedom. These students' protests were organized by Walk Out to Learn, which is a network of Florida-based student activists. And uh, they were in response to the extreme education measures Florida Republican lawmakers have passed in recent months at the behest of their governor, Ron DeSantis. Like the Stop Woke Act, a law which restricts how race and gender are discussed in public schools, and the Don't Say Gay law that bars state public schools from teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity in K through third grade. Just this week, the Florida Board of Education expanded the Don't Say Gay laws classroom ban to all grades. Uh, teachers who violate these laws face being fired, even losing their teaching license in this state. Uh, and now you have Governor Ron DeSantis notching up several of those culture war wins as he prepares for a likely presidential run. And those wins appear to be what Republican voters want from a leader of their party. A new poll from the Wall Street Journal found that 55 percent of Republican primary voters say that fighting, quote, woke ideology in our schools and businesses is more important than protecting Medicare and Social Security. And while Republican lawmakers work overtime to court that sentiment from their party's base for political gain, one Florida Democrat who supported today's student walkout, State Representative Angie Nixon, she's calling out that obvious double standard saying in part, quote, Republicans claim that they hate cancel culture. However, they are literally the ones trying to cancel cultures. They're trying to cancel our communities. They're trying to cancel the ability of our students, our babies to learn, to be taught true history, black history, LGBTQ history, and trans, trans history, our history, American history. Joining us now is Democratic Florida State Representative Angie Nixon. State Representative Nixon, it is great to have you with us tonight. Thank you so much for making time. Let me first just get your reaction to what we saw play out today across your state, these um, walkout protests by the students. Yeah, so what played out today was greatness happening. We saw students at over 300 uh, schools across the, the state of Florida 
pushing back against the discriminatory practices and policies that uh, this overreaching Republican-led legislature and governor uh, have been pushing over the past few years. And so we see our our leaders of today, not tomorrow, are actually standing up. And it was just, it was great to witness. What do you make of how, you know, this this pace, the, the lightning speed with which Republicans have passed so many restrictive bills uh, on these so-called culture war issues against wokeness in the past six weeks since the start of this session? Yeah, what we have is uh, a overzealous and politically ambitious governor who's bullying our state legislature. At the end of the day, he should be more concerned with the fact that we have rising costs of property insurance, but instead he wants to continue to throw out red <coughs> meat to a base. And he knows that he is actually losing <laughs> um, some of the congressional members who have went on to endorse Donald Trump. And so he's trying at all costs to really uh, use his bully his bully pulpit to 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 get these things passed to try to again just appeal to a base of voters uh, because he knows he's losing Trump voters right now. So so how do you and your colleagues, your Democratic colleagues, respond to these measures? How do you fight this battle that is taking place right now when there is such a majority in the Florida state legislature that they can just drive this through at the behest of uh, Ron DeSantis? Yeah, so we have to just resist uh, at all costs and use our platform, social media, push back, uh, and also file amendments to, uh, sometimes people say they're petty amendments, to actually show the uh, ridiculousness uh, of what's coming out of Tallahassee. And so also just going out and telling people what's happening here in the state of Florida, taking it to the streets. I'm an organizer. I'm a community organizer as well. And so we have to go down in the grassroots and let people know what's going on. Oftentimes here in the state of Florida, folks don't know what's coming out of Tallahassee, but I think we, we've we been doing a great job this legislative session letting folks know all eyes are going to be on Florida. Because again, like I stated, we have a very politically ambitious governor and right now he's overreaching. And so we're going to be on the front lines here, letting everyone know that Florida ain't as free as they say it is and that America Erica, you are in danger, girl. We have to stop Ron DeSantis in his tracks. Um, let me ask you about, uh, you know, what is taking place there and some of the Republicans specifically. We have seen reporting this week that some of your Republican colleagues are actually growing tired of the governor's culture wars, but they're, I guess, scared to speak out publicly about it. Can you describe the dynamic in the Florida legislature right now? I mean, do you have any insight? Perhaps you are speaking to Republicans who do not feel that this is what Florida should be consuming its time with. <laughs> Yeah, I actually had a conversation with one of my Republican colleagues that I will not name, but they stated that, you know, after this legislative session, they may come back as Democrats because they do fear that they are really overreaching here. Uh, look, at the end of the day, we have had 30 years of Republican uh, rule in the state of Florida, and we are currently on a race to the bottom. What we have seen constantly day in and day out is the uh, defunding of public schools. Uh, our children are, uh, have a lot of our children can't read and they aren't even on grade level. We have an over 8,000 educator shortage. Uh, there's a mass, there's a mass exodus of educators in the state of Florida. Look, I, I have a roommate when I'm in Tallahassee, uh, and she is a Florida state uh, professor. She told me that there were some professors that were 
going to come to to Florida. However, they rescinded and decided not to go um, mm. because of the lack of academic freedom here in our state. We are losing our best and brightest here, and Florida's on a race to the bottom if we continue down this path. And again, America, we do not want DeSantis. Look what he's doing here in the state of Florida. We do not need someone like that leading the country. It is exactly what he is promising to do, to take what he's doing in Florida and bring it nationwide if he does make it to the White House. Democratic Florida State Representative Angie Nixon, really appreciate you making time for us tonight. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Still, more ahead tonight. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis hasn't announced he is running for president yet, but the snubs are already trickling in, and some are from Republicans, as you just heard there, in his own backyard. That's next. It was October 2018, just one month before that year's midterm elections, and then Congressman Ron DeSantis, well, he was running for governor of Florida as a staunch ally of Donald Trump. DeSantis even released this, a campaign ad, yep, showing him building a fake border wall with his children and teaching them to read on a Trump campaign sign. But other Florida Republicans were less eager to wrap their arms around the controversial president at the time, and one of those skittish Florida Republicans was this guy, Michael Waltz. Uh, Waltz was running to fill the deep red congressional district that DeSantis gave up to become or to run for governor. But even in that safe Republican district, that strongly red district, Michael Waltz, you know, he had thoughts that Trump could be a liability. Here was the headline from Politico at the time. Florida Republican House candidate snubs Trump rally. And in the article, it read in part, Sources familiar with the talk say Michael Waltz declined amid concerns about the risks of publicly stumping with Trump. Fast forward to today, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, well, they are locked in a bitter battle over who will be the ultimate leader of the Republican Party. And that guy, Michael Waltz, what is he up to? Well, let's bring in Florida Republican Congressman Michael Waltz represents Governor DeSantis's old district in the House, but just endorsed former President Trump. At the end of the day, Martha, he asked me for my endorsement. Uh, he's been very good to me in my district, and I said yes. Ouch. Florida Republican Congressman Michael Waltz, just the latest Republican in that state to snub Ron DeSantis in favor for Donald Trump. Donald Trump now has the support of more than half of the Republicans in Florida's congressional delegation, And those endorsements come as a new Wall Street Journal poll shows Ron DeSantis trailing Donald Trump 51 percent to 38 percent. And that same poll had DeSantis leading Trump by 14 points just four months ago. Republican voters and elected officials, well, they appear to be abandoning Ron DeSantis in droves. And some, well, they are not mincing words about why they are doing so. Take, for example, David Trott, former Republican congressman there who served with Ron DeSantis on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, he told Politico just today, I think DeSantis is an a-hole. I don't think he cares about people. Joining us now is Matthew Dowd, MSNBC senior political analyst. Matthew, it's great to see you again. Um, I know you're probably looking at this and thinking, what in the world? I don't think I've seen a camp potential campaign, I should say, kind of implode so quickly Um, But what happened to DeSantis's proto campaign in these last few weeks? Well, it's like it's blown up even before it got even moved to the launch pad. Um, 
I mean, I think the problem is, and I've always said this, these congressmen, I mean, I don't make a lot with endorsements unless what they're doing is recognizing what the base is up to. And I think these congressmen aren't leading the voters. They're actually following the voters in the course of this. And it's a demonstration about the stranglehold that Donald Trump still has on the base of the Republican Party. If you put a you know center point on where the Republican Party is today, it is Donald Trump. And that's the problem Ron DeSantis has. Now, maybe he launches a campaign that is contingent on Donald Trump falling and failing apart and getting you know put in jail or something. Maybe that's the contingency. But a one-on-one race with Trump versus DeSantis, um, it, it doesn't look like it's going to be much of a campaign. Let me, you bring up a lot of interesting points, but let me play for you this because I want to get to some of your, the points that you raised. But listen to um, Florida Republican Congressman Greg Stubbe um, and what he said about DeSantis on Fox News, and I'll get your reaction on the other side. There's been multiple opportunities where I have gone up to him and talked to him, given him my cell phone number, asked him to reach out to me. Uh, There's been events in my district that I was specifically in, um, told I couldn't be part of the press conference, told to go stand in the corner, was not uh, allowed to be participating in that when he was in my district. So it's uh, you can't win friends and influence people that way, especially in the political realm. So I guess my question to you, Matthew, is, you know, these congressmen, no one's putting a gun to their head right now and say, hey, endorse one of the I think politicians, ultimately, the Republican Party will have to make decisions. Everyone will make decisions about who they endorse. But this is so early on in the game that I'm surprised more are not saying, hey, let's wait and see if Ron can get this momentum going and we can get some steam behind him. Is this all because... Ron DeSantis just isn't all good at retail politics, or is it because the pull of Donald Trump and the consequences of going against him potentially are so grave? Well, I think it's a combination of both those things. I think it's a combination of one that Donald Trump, I mean, you're not, they're not dealing with a rational actor, right? And so a rational actor would be like, okay, I understand. I want you with me, but I understand you can join me whenever, you know, I win a primary or something. That would be a rational actor. Donald Trump is not that. And so he'll commit all sorts of vengeance and and drum up all kinds of craziness in their districts among Republicans towards Mm. them. They don't want that. So that's the other part. But if Ron DeSantis, they'd be willing to sort of push up against some of that if Ron DeSantis was a very good politician. Now, the thing about statewide races and and for viewers is statewide races, you can kind of hide sometimes your inability to have personal connections. You can run on television ads. There isn't, the press doesn't cover them uh, as much. You can avoid debates. You can do all those sorts of things where they don't really, voters don't really see who you are fundamentally, except through the prism of what you're showing them. In a presidential race, the the heat of the lights are so bright and it's, it's such a clarity. It shows all your flaws. It shows your strengths, but it also shows all your flaws. And from what I've talked to, and I've talked to a number of Republicans in Florida, it is pretty common knowledge among all Republicans there that have been in any contact with 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 Ron DeSantis is he has no retail politics ability. He just has no even the as as the congressman pointed out, even the basic things about learning someone's name or going out of your way to reach out to them. He's not interested in it. That is not who he is. Do you think um, Ron DeSantis is making a mistake right now by continuing to delay? Even We're assuming he's going to run, but do you think he is making a bad decision, a mistake politically by not entering the race at this point? 
Well, you know, when you take on Donald Trump, you have to make that decision early, clear, and then do, do a full frontal push up against him. That's the only way you can beat Donald Trump. He's actually has the worst of all possible worlds, which is, is he hasn't made that clarity of decision. He's unwilling to push up against Donald Trump. And so it basically allows Donald Trump to do what Donald Trump does, which is all of this stuff where he comes up with names. He starts attacking you. And Ron DeSantis is basically taking all of these arrows, unwilling to sort of come up and confront Donald Trump. And that's the fear that Donald Trump bestows on people. And it's basically because if if he was if he was to do that, he could actually point out negatives and point out all that. But if you're unwilling to do that, Donald Trump will tear your heart out. And it seems like that's what he wants to do to Ron DeSantis at this uh, moment in the race. Uh, Matthew Dodd, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Uh, We have one more story for you coming up, and it involves billionaire Elon Musk's very, very bad week and the potentially reckless consequences of his latest action at Twitter. We'll tell you about that next. Stay with us. Uh, This has not been a good week for Elon Musk. The billionaire's wealth plummeted by nearly $13 billion, yes, with a B, after his company Tesla reported disappointing first quarter earnings. And after a rocket built by his other company, SpaceX, well, it exploded in midair only minutes after liftoff. But if you have a hard time feeling bad for billionaires about stuff like this, there is another Elon Musk fiasco from the past week that you may want to pay closer attention to. Yesterday, the social media site Twitter, also owned by Musk, well, they started removing the blue verification check marks from accounts that don't pay for a monthly subscription. Excuse me. While Twitter's verification system was never perfect until yesterday, you could reasonably believe that the people or brands or agencies with the blue check marks were in fact those very people or brands or agencies they were claiming to be. But here's what happened when Twitter began taking those blue checks away. New York City's official government account tried to reassure followers that they were legit. And shortly after, an imposter account contested that, saying they were the real official New York City government account. The good thing is that imposter account, well, it was taken down a few hours later. But what happens I guess when hundreds, if not thousands, of imposter accounts suddenly begin to pop up. What is stopping bad actors from purchasing a blue check for $8 to so harmful disinformation? I mean, imagine Election Day 2024. What happens if someone pretends to be a state election official and posts conflicting information about polling locations or hours? Or what if during yet another tragic mass shooting in this country, a fake but verified account pretending to be a local police department declares an area is safe when a mass shooter is still at large. These hypotheticals are unfortunately not far-fetched, but hopefully they can serve as a cautionary tale for how we should navigate these online spaces, certainly this one that is owned by Elon Musk. Always be skeptical. Always ask questions. Uh, That is the show for tonight. 